0: welcome to the trinity western chapel podcast as a vibrant part of life at twu chapel creates opportunities for us to engage with god's story of redemption in jesus christ through his word prayer and worship we're glad you're listening and hope that you encounter god's heart for you and the world Thank you once again for letting, letting me be a part of your chapel experience here at Trinity Western University. Thank you, Dr. Ellis, for inviting me. It's truly an honor, not only to be with you, digitally speaking, but it's also truly an honor for me to be able to speak about the cross and the the depth and richness of what happened at Calvary's Hill. A seemingly simple act of just hanging on a cross and dying has so much implication for our lives that it affects us philosophically, theologically, historically, and even contemporarily. Amazing stuff, and it's an honor to share it with you. So I begin with a certain text from Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 56. And this is what the Bible says. After Jesus had died and he was taken down from the cross. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, meaning crucifying Jesus. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the sabbath was beginning the women who had come with him from galilee followed and saw the tomb and saw his how his body was laid and they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the sabbath day they rested, according to the commandment now that's a lot of text there for a moment here i want to just pause for a moment and say this there's a couple of key facets here just as historical uh, uh, curiosities that have great significance that are important for us you know the resurrection of jesus which will t- you'll, you'll you'll be hearing about uh, shortly in another chapel service is the crowning miracle of the christian faith now the resurrection of jesus is a bodily resurrection in other words it's physically verifiable it either happened or it didn't it wasn't some spiritual revival it wasn't an ethereal resurrection it was a bodily resurrection so either the tomb was empty or it wasn't empty on the third day and there's evidence for that but here's what's interesting in this text specifically the bible goes out of its way to name the person in whose tomb jesus was laid why is that important it's important for several reasons because there would be no reason to say the name of the tomb of the per- the name of the person whose tomb jesus was laid in if you wanted to fake it if you wanted to fake that jesus was in a tomb you would make it unidentifiable so that no one could go and verify, no, that tomb is still there and that body is still in there. But no, Luke includes the detail of whose tomb it was. It was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And it isn't just any old person, by the way. This isn't just some obscure guy named Joseph. There was a lot of Josephs running around that day. But it was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, a member of the Jewish council, a very prominent man who many people would have known. It would be like me saying that some was buried in the, to- the family tomb of Barack Obama or of um, Justin Trudeau or whoever it happens to be because they're famous people you could go and verify that and the gospel includes that detail, which is essentially a dare. It basically says we're so confident that we know where he was buried that we're going to give you the name of the guy in whose tomb he was buried you can go verify it yourself. Historical, pungency in the very narrative of jesus's death and burial but there's more to it than that And this is why i want to go into my text and understanding the implications of what happened here for you and for me do you notice how this ends this passage ends it says the women who had come with him from galilee fo- meaning jesus followed and saw the tomb and saw how his body was laid Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments and then it says this this is curious on the sabbath day they rested according to the commandment now that's an important statement pregnant with meaning on the sabbath day they rested according to the commandment they were required to rest to do no work so they couldn't do any work for preparation of jesus's body for a proper burial he was the only man in their lives or among the very few who had ever really dignified them beyond just a woman's places in the kitchen or women are better seen than heard kind of a mentality no he gave them education he vaunted them as equals to men He would take support from them financially and he made them a huge part of his ministry but now you have these women who have now seen jesus die and they stood there they were there when he was dying they were there when he was being tortured they were there when he was taken down from the cross and then they were also there when he was laid in his tomb and they were going to be there three days later, so they could properly anoint his body. The faithfulness of these women was remarkable. But then the Bible says on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. That means to me that they didn't truly actually have anything close to approximating rest, but they just didn't do any activity. They didn't rest, they weren't restored on that Saturday. They were tormented on that Saturday. How could this be? How could, be? how could it be the fact that our Messiah, the one who had claimed he would deliver us and who performed so many miracles, who delivered us from our own demons, these women had thought, how could it possibly be that he died this way at the hands of the Romans, at the, at the uh, urging of our religious leaders? How could this possibly be? There was no rest there on Saturday. How could there be possibly be a rest? There was a lack of activity, but that isn't the same thing. There was no peace amongst any of Jesus' believers on Saturday. And why? We see this at our day, too. I want you to think about how many times we clamor in life now, and we raise our fists and we shout at each other, and we're angry at each other for every little slight, or even big slights, things that aren't even slights at all, but are major, major injustices. And we're angry and we clamor, and yet Jesus his birth was foretold as the one in whom all peace would come and peace on earth, goodwill towards men on whom God's favor rests in Luke chapter 2. How can this be? How can this be? You know, a friend of mine and I were having dinner. And he's an atheist. And he told me uh, that he lost all belief in God when his mother died when he was young. He was 10 years old and his mother died. And we've been having a philosophical discussion for quite some time that day at at dinner about how God can exist if there's so much evil and suffering in the world how can a good God exist if there's so much suffering because my friend said this if God is all good he would want to stop the suffering if he was all powerful he would be able to stop the suffering but the suffering still exists so he's either not all good or he's not all powerful or more likely than not he's just not even all there he's not there at all he might as well be a figment of our imaginations and we talked about this for quite some time and we centered on a couple of uh, responses to the so-called problem of evil and I basically pointed out a couple of philosophical responses and we were going very well, our conversation, but we ended up st- centering on one specific topic. And I said, look, if God exists, if God knows all things, then he knows the possible futures depending on our actions. He knows all possible futures and how we're gonna react to things in the future, whether it's good or bad. He said, yeah, that, that's possible. I said, okay, so isn't it possible then that God could allow, not cause, but allow suffering for a greater possible good that could happen in five minutes or 50,000 years from now, but you as a limited human being aren't possibly in a position to judge whether or not God could allow suffering for a greater good. Eventually, he agreed it's possible that God could allow suffering for a greater possible good, but that's when the conversation changed. That's when he made it personal. He said, look, my problem isn't, this sort of philosophical thing. Really it's this, how can you tell me that this God is both good and values me or my mother when he let her die when I was 10? the Same question really on the problem of evil, but now it's become intensely personal, you see. The philosophical rubber has met the existential road and now he needs an answer that isn't just a bunch of syllogisms strung together. He needs something real that really happens in history to show him that God does care And God can use suffering for a greater possible good. And how did I respond? Well, we'll get to that. That's what the cross really is all about. You see, what he was trying to point out was that he, in a microcosm, felt intense sorrow over the loss of his mother. But then he thought, this is terribly unfair. This is unjust that she should die this way of an illness while I was 10. And if God was really there, he would love me enough to and her enough to have prevented her death in the first place. So sorrow, justice, and love. Sorrow from the loss. The cry for justice, this is completely unfair. And the question of love, does God really love me? Or isn't there even a God out there to love in the first place? Sorrow, justice, and love. And we see this not just in our personal experiences every day. We see this all the time, in all the strivings, whether it's the racial inequities we're trying to rectify, or the racial upheavals we're seeing now in our day, sorrow, justice, love, all three converge in and are part of this clamor we're seeing. Uh, The way women have been uh, denigrated for for, for decades now, only now to be emerging in a way that actually sees their rights vindicated. The way we're seeing all kinds of things when it comes to the political sphere, whether it's in the Middle East or here in the West, where we're seeing political spheres clash with each other and ideologies clashing, and what are we all clamoring for? The question of how do we resolve our sorrow? How do we get justice? And where do we find love? In all of our conflicts and all of our sufferings, the questions of sorrow, justice, and love emerge time and time again. And they certainly existed in my friend's struggle with his mother's passing. And the cross really is the place where they all converge on Calvary's Hill is where they converged. And then he's buried in that tomb. And those women were were told rested on the Sabbath day. There was no real rest possible that day because they felt sorrow. They asked for justice. Where is the fairness in all of this? And then asked if this man was not the Messiah, then how can it be that God really loves us? sorrow justice and love but of course sunday came and they witnessed the resurrection and i won't get into that too much other than to say it was the vindication the vindication of christ's claims that he came to lay his life down and give it as a ransom for many he paid that price on the cross and rose again from joseph of arimathea's tomb to never have to be there again, so that one day our tombs, like Joseph's, will be empty. You see, it's in that suffering on the cross that the debt was paid, and I spoke about this last time, that the debt was actually paid, that the one who has no debts of his own, Jesus, can pay your and my debt so that we don't have to, and that justice and mercy are satisfied at the same time. What a remarkable thing that is. Is that pain doesn't have to be meaningless. It doesn't have to seem pointless because a blind Pitiless, indifferent universe, to quote Richard Dawkins, neither knows nor cares about your or my suffering. That's what Dawkins actually says. He says basically this that if the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, meaningless tragedies and meaningless good fortune are exactly what we should expect. Did you see that? Did you hear that? Meaningless tragedies. My friend's mother's death when he was 10 years old, if there is no God, if there's just electrons and selfish genes, is a meaningless tragedy. And every Everything good that happens to you is a meaningless good fortune and he goes on to say this he says there would be at bottom if there was no god essentially no design no purpose no good and no evil nothing but blind pitiless indifference so says dawkins and if there is no god he's not wrong if there is no god then my friend's mother's death meant nothing and my friend's suffering for all those years he had carried that with him, also means nothing. But the cross is the ultimate statement that suffering means something. That it's not an illusion. According to Eastern mysticism, suffering is an illusion, and we need to wake up from that illusion. That's not the case. Suffering is not an illusion. Suffering is the sig- is the is the signal of significance, because when you lose someone, when my friend lost his mother, if he didn't suffer from the loss, then she would have meant nothing to him. But because he suffered so tremendously, that signals to him the depth of how much she means to him. But she means so much more than just what she means to him. She has objective value beyond what my friend thought. The universe neither knows nor cares. Blind, pitiless, and indifferent. But the one who created the universe, the God of the universe, cares very, very deeply. That's what the cross is all about. I think of the words of Melinda Selmas. Melinda Selmas has undergone tremendous psychological and possibly even physical uh, suffering, and yet she holds on to her Christian faith. This is what she says about suffering. Listen carefully to her words. If I could quote these a thousand times, I would. Suffering in Christianity is not only not meaningless, it is ultimately one of the most powerful media for the transmission of meaning. We can stand in adoration between the cross and kneel and kiss the wood that bore the body of our Savior, because this is the means by which the ugly, meaningless, atheistic suffering in the world was transmuted into the living water, the blood of Christ, the wellspring of creation. The great paradox here, she goes on to say, is that the tree of death and suffering is the tree of life, meaning the cross. This central paradox in Christianity allows us to love our own brokenness precisely because it is through that brokenness that we image the broken body of our God and the highest expression of divine love. That God in some sense wills it to be so seems evident in Gethsemane. Christ prays, not my will, but thine be done. And when God's will is done, it involves the scourge and the nails. It's also always struck me, she goes on to say, as particularly fitting and beautiful that when Christ is resurrected, his body is not returned to a state of perfection as the body of Adam in Eden, but rather it still bears the marks of his suffering and death. And indeed, it is precisely through these marks that he is known by Thomas. Do you see what she's saying? The marks of suffering are significant. Is that suffering no longer is meaningless if there is a God who suffers for us so that we one day will never have to so I want to fast forward to what this all means because she mentioned Thomas and you see these disciples who were huddled in a locked room Jesus is dead He's being laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It's Saturday, and then Sunday happens, and he's resurrected, and some have seen it and believed, but Thomas will not believe it. He just will not believe it unless he sees the nail scars in Jesus' hands and the wound in Jesus' side. He won't believe it until then, and Jesus walks through the locked door. He walks through it, and the first thing he says to Thomas is, Shalom Aleichem peace be unto you it's as if he's saying you see these scars thomas this is now your peace what i did for you on the cross where i was buried in joseph's tomb my body is here have peace now your sabbaths will now be days of rest and no longer days of inactivity marked by anxiety They'll be real and true rest and jesus can give us peace in times of darkness. So I go back to my friend and his statement about the, about the, about his mother's death and the sorrow he felt, the demand for justice he wanted and the love he sought. How can my sorrow and my mother's loss possibly be be just if she died when I was just 10 years old? And does this show me that there is no God who truly loves me? Sorrow, justice, love. What happens at the cross? What happens there? At the cross, Jesus experiences our sorrow, the sorrow we should be feeling, because he is forsaken by the Father in that momentarily forsakenness, which has infinite pain. He is forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, quoting Psalm 22, he feels the sorrow. But why does he feel the sorrow? So that justice can be served. Because if we really wanted justice, we would get what we deserve. And what we deserve is punishment and separation from God for eternity. Yet Jesus takes on the punishment for us, feeling that forsakenness so that we don't have to. He feels the sorrow so that justice can be served. And why does he bear the brunt of our sin in that act of justice? Because he loves us with an infinite love. Sorrow, justice, love, all of them find their reconciliation and their resolution in the cross of Calvary. Right there, in one spot. You know, it struck me as particularly fitting and amazing that the word crucifixion has as its root word, the Latin word crux. It's fitting because The crux is the place where all things come together and then turn, the crux of a lever, the crux of the matter, as it were. It's where all things come together and then turn. And on a obscure hill in an obscure province of the Roman Empire, a seemingly obscure preacher dies at the hands of the the, the Roman Empire and at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And yet the seemingly insignificant death has all of the significance of being the crux of human history because sorrow justice love are converged and they find resolution there because justice and mercy are solved the paradox is solved there because my search to find the God who is the greatest possible being and the search for 1.5 billion Muslims who are looking to find the greatest possible being can be found in a God who at the cross shows himself to be the greatest possible being by expressing the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. The search for the secularist, the search for the Eastern mysticist, the search for the Muslim, the search for every single human being can be found and resolved in one place, the crux of human history, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. And my friend's question gets answered there as well. Remember what his question was? His question was simply this. How can I know this God is good and values my mother if he let her die when I was 10? It's a powerful question. I prayed quickly and this is what happened. This is what came out. I said, you know, we've been talking for some time and you agreed that philosophically speaking, God could allow, not cause, but allow suffering for a greater possible purpose. He said, yeah, that's sure. Okay, it's possible. I said, you know, it's a nice theory. It's a philosophically tenable theory does it give you great comfort?" He said, "No, not really." I said, "Well, theories don't do that. Theories don't comfort you at night. But the reality behind the theory can, you know, i as a christian have more than just theory to tell me that god can use suffering for a greater possible good i as a christian have a history that show me that god did use suffering for the greatest possible good because he allowed his own son to suffer an ignominious death on calvary's hill not for some conceivable theoretical greater possible good but for the greatest possible good there could possibly be is that jesus suffered so that we could be saved suffering for the greatest good there could be salvation of the world. And then I said to him, you ask one other question, how can we know that this God values your mother? How do you know how valuable anything is? How do you know? You know how valuable something is about what you're willing to pay for it. And the God of the universe, the infinite God, paid an immeasurable price to spend eternity with your mother and he does that for you too. A universe that is blind, pitiless, and indifferent cannot possibly care about your mother or you. But the, the God who made a universe so that you could live and eventually redeemed you through the cross shows you that you have an infinite value because that's what the cross is all about an infinite value. And that is an objective reality. Neither your opinion nor my opinion is what gives your mother value. It's the, crea- the creator of all the worlds who's the one who gives her that value. And because he is the source of objective reality, she has an objective value because he gives it to her. And he gives that to you too. You know, what's interesting is that as we walked out of the restaurant, he said, you know, this is a lot to think about. And what you shared with me is something I need to think about more because boy, that does seem worth believing. This is what the cross is all about. This is what it means when he's laid in Joseph's tomb. And the Sabbath that seems so elusive to those women, and that first Sabbath after Jesus' death, becomes a true Sabbath, one we can we can actually rest, that we don't need to work hard to earn God's love, but we need, simply need to embrace the gift that Jesus performed on that cross and have his love and then live our lives accordingly. Paradoxes are resolved. Here is love, vast as the ocean. So says the hymn. grace and love, like mighty rivers, float incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss a guilty world in love, paradoxes are solved. But then I see things put together in this one hymn where Isaac Watts says this, when I survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that, saw, that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Now here's what he says, listen to this. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such sorrow, love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Sorrow and love flow mingled down. When? Because of an act of justice. The cross brings all them together so that he could have a crown. But that's the crowning glory of our Lord, is that through his death, his burial, and eventually his freedom from that burial, He turns crosses into thrones, thorns into crowns, and sinners into saints. May you imbibe in that truth. May you abide in that truth. And may you spread that truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thanks for listening. We hope to worship together with you soon at our next broadcast online at livechapel.twu.ca every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 11 a.m. You can also stay connected with us by following at TWU Chapel and at TWU Student Ministries. Much love.